I, I wonder if somebody was watching you over the last week, they're spying on you, um, uh, what would they, uh, they, they watch what you did, what do you think they would decide that you believed about the future from looking at your last week? No, they, I know, they, they look at how you go about your work, um, they, they look at how you treat people, and maybe they, they get into your kind of bank account and see how you spent your money. Uh, they, they're able to kind of look at the decisions you've made about your time. And maybe they, they start to write a list of the things that get you mad. Maybe the things that get you sad. Maybe, maybe they, they write another list of the things that seem to get you excited and, and energized. And, and they put it all together and they draw, drew it all. And they, they drew a picture of what you believed about the future based on how you acted in the last week. What picture would that be? You see, what we believe about tomorrow will change how we live today. What we actually believe about tomorrow, not just what we say we believe, but what we actually believe about tomorrow will change how we act today. Climate change is an example of that, isn't it? Those who are most convinced by an impending catastrophe, you can see them in how they act today. What they believe about tomorrow shapes how they act today. Uh, Tim Keller um, imagines two factory workers. Uh, They work side by side in a very repetitive, mundane job, day after day, week after week. One of these workers uh, receives the minimum wage for what they do. The other worker, in addition to that wage, is promised that at the end of a year, they will get a bonus of £500 million. And then, then Tim Keller says... Um, imagine how differently they will go about that job. The same work. Uh, How how will they respond when it's a hard day or when there's an opportunity to slack off a little bit, Uh, when when it's pressurised? And how how will they cope? It will look differently, massively different. What you believe about tomorrow will change how you live today. We've been away from Isaiah for a little bit, but as we come back, we come to a passage which is an explosion of light. In these few short verses we're looking at, um, the future bursts into today. Uh, The the message of Isaiah, the whole book of Isaiah, the long book of Isaiah, is a very simple message. Uh, It really is that the whole book is a message of saying, trust the Lord. That's it. Very simple, isn't it? Easy to say. Easy to say. Much harder to do it in practice. It's a challenge. The challenge to trust the Lord doesn't meet us in theory, but it meets us in the middle of life's madness. Uh, in, in Isaiah chapter 1, we saw God appealing to his people, uh, showing them that to refuse his offer of life is, is crazy and tragic and not necessary. And right at the beginning, God, with the heart of a father, holds out the medicine of his mercy. And then still in chapter 1, the message turns towards worthless worship those who who say they trust God but they refuse to turn from the sin in their lives but again God's grace pleads and says come on let's settle the matter though your sins are like scarlet they will be as white as snow and then the the last part of chapter one God painfully reveals the true colors of sin and then we get to chapter two and if you look with me you see how chapter two begins it begins with a heading uh, pretty much the same heading that chapter 1 begins with. Um, And and because it starts with a heading, it seems like it's marking out the beginning of a new section in Isaiah. And and actually, as you read on through Isaiah, you don't come to another heading, anything like this, until chapter 13 and verse 1. So we could say chapter 2 to 12 is a section. 
Um, in the middle of this comes chapter 6, which is hugely important. Um, it's when Isaiah tells about his call as a prophet. Uh, and chapter 6 begins with a marker in history. Uh, chapter 6 begins with Isaiah saying, in the year that King Uzziah died. And then we read on, chapter 7 tells us about the dodgy king Ahaz. So, so what it seems that's happening here is that in chapter 2 to 5, the background is the stable reign of King Uzziah. A King Uzziah was, was a, a king who reigned for 52 years. And, and under his reign, the, the nation enjoyed a, enjoyed a time of prosperity. That there were military advances. There was um, big building projects. There was economic prosperity. Uh, but spiritually, in the time of Uzziah, the challenge was to trust the Lord when things are going well. Trust the Lord when pride and self-reliance are flourishing. But then after that, Uzziah's son Jotham reigned, then his son Ahaz. And chapter 7 to 12 seems to have in the background the tumultuous reign of Ahaz. This is opposite to Uzziah. The nation is now on its knees. It's attacked. It's under pressure. And, And here in the time of pressure, the temptation is to rush to other nations for help rather than to turn to the Lord. And we can zoom in a little bit closer and look at the next few chapters of Isaiah, where we are now, just to see what Isaiah is doing. Um, oh, wrong way. So our, our section today is looking to the future, the glorious future. But then it's going to get followed in the rest of chapter 2 with a condemnation of the proud, um, particularly with a kind of sense of religious pride, it will seem. Then, then you get into chapter 3, and again, it's another message about the proud, a condemnation of the proud, but with a more social sense. And and then chapter 4, a very short chapter, looks again towards the glorious future. And and it seems that what is happening is that the Lord is putting before the people this contrast between the glorious future and the condemnation of pride in order to draw their trust in him. That's where we're going to go over the next few weeks, perhaps, if we get there. Um, But for today, uh, we're in chapter 2, verses one to five. Look, look at me again, verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the last days. Dot, dot, dot. Uh, I, I just finished reading a story with my son, Matty. Um, the, uh, the four books in this series that we've read, we got to the end of it last Sunday evening. Um, and, and as we read the last few chapters, there was weeping and wailing. Uh, Matty was a bit upset as well. Um, in fact, we had to get Josie to come in and read the last chapter for us. It was a bit beyond me. Um, uh, Nikki overheard what was happening as we were reading, and she is currently in book two of the series. And she said, if that's how it ends, I'm not sure I want to keep reading. Uh, I don't know if you're one of those people who, when you're reading a book, if you're not sure if you want to keep going, you flick to the back and see how it ends. You, to see how it ends, to see if you want to keep going. Well, that's what verse 1 is telling us we have here. A sneak preview into the last chapter. We're looking towards the end of history. How is it going to wrap up in the last days? What will happen? And the passage, it's a, it's a stunning bolt of light. A bright explosion of tomorrow into today. And it's not wishful thinking. This isn't kind of an, an escapist dreaminess. Now, verse 1 literally says, The word which Isaiah son of Amos saw. It's underlining that this comes with the full force of divine authority. God, creator, is speaking into the darkness. I'm going to draw out four features of the last days. The feature of the mountain, 
the river, the word, and the transformation. Let's look at those in turn. What do we have? The mountain. Here we go. Verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. And then the people will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. I don't know if you've seen the new McDonald's advert. Have you seen the new McDonald's advert with the eyebrows that rise up and down? Um, There aren't any words in the advert. There isn't any food in the advert. There isn't even a restaurant in the advert. And it just has a load of office workers raising their eyebrows. And then somebody draws the iconic M on a post-it note. And it's a good advert. It works really well. And we get it as we watch it. Now imagine you were to time travel back to ancient Rome, and show that advert. It wouldn't make any sense at all. It's full of stuff that makes sense to us because we live now in this time. That's what verse 2 is like. Uh, Isaiah uses ideas that would make perfect sense to the people at that time. It might not hit us immediately, so we have to think. What is all this stuff about a mountain? What he says, it is the mountain of the Lord's temple, the Lord's house. Verse 3, it says it again, the people say, it is the mountain of the Lord, the temple, the house of the God of Jacob. Now, the the idea of God's house being a mountain is as old as the earth. The prophet Ezekiel says, the garden of Eden is the holy mount of God. And what we see in the first few chapters of the Bible is that the world is created to be a temple Uh, Eden is the holy of holies in the middle of it and God walks there with his people and they live to worship and serve him. You see, God created the world to be a place of abundant goodness, Uh, such lavish happiness. That's what God created the world to be. The Bible word is blessing. Uh, God set up the world, he sat in dominion over it and he poured out blessing. It's not the world that we see around us today. Not the world that Isaiah saw around him. The brightness of that hope-filled beginning has been dulled by the destruction of humanity's sinfulness. But as Isaiah writes, he's not concerned with today. He's, He's speaking of tomorrow. And when he speaks about tomorrow, he draws in these echoes from Eden. That original paradise is portrayed as reaching its zenith. You see, right in the beginning... The potential for imperishable bliss was embedded in the fabric of the cosmos. And and Isaiah says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. What he's saying is that when the last days come, this will be a permanent and enduring reality. It will be the highest of the mountains. See, in Isaiah's time, the that the idols and the gods of the nations all had their mountain homes. But in the last days, it will be clear that there is only one God, the true God, the God of Israel. The mountain of the Lord will be the highest. It will be most prominent, most important. And, And he says, it will be exalted above the hills. It's a strange thing to say about a mountain. He's saying this mountain will be Growing and growing. Literally says this mountain will get lifted and lifted and lifted to a place of dominance. What Isaiah is saying is he's saying when he looks to the future, what he sees is that that original paradise in Eden will have become full grown. 
Uh, so the whole world will be the permanent place of God's presence. And all of those original hopes will be realised. It's not wishful thinking. This is the message that creator God speaks into the darkness. It's not wishful thinking, but I wonder if I could say that it is wish-filled thinking. You know, a wish is, is when you kind of, um, something you'd really like but is impossible or highly improbable. But also we could say a wish is just something that is so wonderfully stunning. And in that sense, this is wish-filled thinking. I got in the habit of quoting C.S. Lewis every week, so we'll do that now. Um, C.S. Lewis said, uh, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven. Do you get that? No, no, no times when we're just so consumed with what is in front of us. We're not really thinking about what lies in that vast eternal future. Or, or, or when, you know, the things that our hearts get wrapped around are, are just the temporary things, the dust on the scales of eternity. Now, there have been times when I don't think we desire heaven. Then he says, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we've ever desired anything else. You see, what he means by that, I think, I think he means that we cannot shift our creatureliness. We are made by God and for God. Nothing we do will ever change that. No, no amount of rebellion or rejection or denial will ever stop us being what we are. We are made by God and for God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. So every longing we have, every desire we have, every craving in our heart, if you strip it back and boil it down and take off the external shell, in the heart of hearts what you find is a longing and a deep desire for God. I think it's G.K. Chesterton who said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. You see, we drink from broken systems. We bury our head in the sewer and it's only going to make us sick, but the thirst that drove us there is real. And it, can't, it can only be quenched by the pure living water of God himself. Now, even our boredom, maybe you're bored now, but even our, our boredom is a longing for God. No, in its heart of hearts, it's an aching for something that will enthrall us right into the marrow of our bones. Well, that something is a someone. It's God himself, God who is so, so terrifyingly good. He's so stunningly good. There's no measure to his goodness. There's no accounting of the extent of his goodness. It goes on and on and on. And his goodness is able to make us happy and full and deeply content. His, his goodness is able to make us like kind of as, as thoroughly excited as a storm and at peace like a mirrored sea at the same time. We're made for him. Eden tells us that. Made for him. Made to be with him. Made to know him. Made to enjoy him. All your desires, every desire you have is uniquely designed to be only answered by him. Are you with me? Now Isaiah looks to the last tomorrow. And what he sees is that the place of God's presence, God's house fills Everything. It has grown and grown to become permanent and unshakable. You see, the future is indescribably bright. Really, really bright. The mountain. That's the first feature. The next feature is the river. Look at the end of verse 2. 
It says that the mountain is going to be exalted above the hills and the nations, all the nations, will stream to it. This is bonkers, right? Now, do you know what a stream does? Not just a little trickling stream, but imagine a kind of raging river, like the, 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 um, the, the bridges in Little Paxton this last week when the floodwaters were racing through. Now, imagine that. What does a river do? It races down, doesn't it? That's why a river flows. Gravity is pulling it toward the sea. But this river doesn't race down. It races up the mountain. A river made of all the nations. It's a, there's a supernatural magnetism drawing all the nations towards the mountain of the Lord. It's a reversal of the curse at Babel. At Babel, people were scattered from their self-exalting temple. In the last days, the nations get drawn back to the Lord, towards the God-exalting temple. And when the mountain of the Lord is lifted above the hills, all the futility of other worship is exposed and the nations will rush to the one true God. And that compulsion will be a happy compulsion. Verse 3. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. Why? Well, he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Willingly they will come, eager to submit to God. But but you see why they come. They say, let us go up to the temple of the God of Jacob. The temple is the house. Let's go to his house, is what they're saying. Now why do you go to someone's house? Yesterday, some of my friends from university came to our house. Not because we've got a great house. They came because it's our house and that's where we are. They wanted to be with us. Now why did the nations rush to God's house? That's where God lives. They want to be with God. And the beauty of that is amazing, isn't it? Think about it. Just try and imagine it in your mind's eye. Just a flood of nations, peoples, an uncountable throng. You look at it. Look at it as it passes by and you see every nation, every tribe, every people, every, every language. Such stunning diversity, but united with one great passion. They want to be with the Lord. They want to be with the God of Jacob. This is the future. The whole diversity of the world united in the joy of being in God's presence. The future is incredibly bright. How will it happen? How could it come about? Well, the next feature is the word. There's a little untranslated word in the NIV, but it's important. You can slot it in before the law. The little word is for, the basis for the inrush of the nations, the catalyst for this event. What is it? For the law, that's the instruction, instruction will go out from Zion. What's that? The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See the mechanism here? The word is going out and the nations are rushing in. Now, now, Isaiah is looking forward to the future. We might want to say, well, what's happened since he saw this? I'll tell you one of the things that's happened. 700 years after this, Jesus Christ was born, was crucified. He rose again, and then he said to his disciples, you must take the message to the ends of the world. And so in Jerusalem, in this same Jerusalem that Isaiah was speaking about, that little group of the first followers were gathered together. And as they prayed... It says in Acts 2 that suddenly storm and fire fell from heaven and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and the place of God's presence. The temple was no longer the old building, but now it's the people of Jesus. The church of Christ is the place of God's presence. And those followers went from Jerusalem, preaching the word, sharing the message. And the nations heard. And the ingathering began. And the ingathering has continued since that day. And there are many people from all nations who hear about the Lord Jesus and put their trust in him. And on that day, the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter stood up to explain what was happening. And he said, all of this that's happening is here to fulfill the words of the prophet Joel. And he quotes from the prophet Joel. But before he quotes from the prophet Joel, he uses a unique phrase that only comes up at one other point in the whole of the Bible. And that point is Acts and it's Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. This is to fulfill what was said by the prophet in the last days. What Isaiah foresaw has now already begun. That's why we're here today. We are testimony of this. The word came to us, passing over generation to generation across geography and history. The message originating in in the Lord Jesus, in his death and his resurrection, that has gone out and says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word has gone out and we have been drawn in. Isaiah describes another astonishing feature of the last days, our last word, transformation. See, this great bright tomorrow rises out of the ashes of the dark today. Isaiah is under no illusion of what the world is like and what people are like. But he says, but in the last days, verse 4, the Lord will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. Uh, The people who get gathered in have got baggage. They've got their hurts. They've carried injustices. There are broken relationships, harms that have been done. There are disputes among the peoples. But in the last days, the Lord himself is going to work it out. The Lord himself will take it on himself to put it right. He will show how to live together. He will show how enemies can be in harmony together. And and then Isaiah gives this this astonishing image of what it will be like. He says, They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. I I think this is written on a wall outside the UN building in New York. It's a vivid image, isn't it? just, Just think on what this is saying. Swords and spears, they are the tools of war. That They are death tools. They are designed specifically to take life. That's what they're for. That's their purpose and intention and their use. They are death tools. But in the last days, those death tools will be changed into plowshares and pruning hooks. The farmer's tools. You can't help but think back to Eden. But back to the time before there was any conflict, before there was any war. When mankind's mission was to work the ground and enjoy the goodness it produced. Plowshares and pruning hooks are tools of life, tools to bring life. It's a stunning image, isn't it? Not simply that the death tools are gone. It's much more, it's a deep, redemptive work. That the means, the tools of death are transformed into tools of life. It's poetic, isn't it? But it's... We've got to let ourselves dwell on, the, on how big that is. 
Now, just, just, just think about where we live today. Consider the death tools around us today. You know, weapons of war, sure, we'll mention those. But, but other things. Uh, a trafficking industry. Systems that oppress the poor and the needy. Uh, abuse of the vulnerable. Uh, the whole kind of mega industry of pornography with its use of, of media and internet and uh, or, or drug abuse and everything that makes and feeds addiction, all the, the, the process from production to distribution. Death tools, opposing life and flourishing. We can open our eyes and we can look and call things what they are. These are tools of death. Sadly, some are necessary because of the evil in the world, but they are designed to reduce life. And as we look at these death tools, then let's dive into Isaiah's vision. And see that in the last days, these tools of death will not simply be gone, but somehow they will be marvelously changed so that they become a means of supporting life and bringing flourishing. In the last days, nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That the end of conflict will be so deep and pervasive, it will not be practiced, it will not even be known. People won't know how to fight with each other. That's, that's crazy, isn't it? You think how natural it is that our response to any kind of hurt or harm is to, is, is to bite back, is to fight back. So inbuilt in us. But on that day, we won't even know how to do it. Imagine it. The future is incredibly bright. So what? What we believe about the future will change how we live today. Now, what would it look for, for you to be driven today by this future vision? Now, I think then we have to see that this passage is shocking. Now, the thrust of this is just a little passage, but the thrust of it so clearly is to celebrate Israel's destiny. Flicking toward the end of the story and finding that the conclusion is glorious. And the last words say, to be continued. Glory and glory and glory and glory. But what is so shocking is that it follows chapter 1. Now the message so far in Isaiah is a challenge to face up to sin. There is a deep sin, there's a foolish sin, an awful sin. The faithful city has become a prostitute. She's whoring herself out after any idol she can find. They've got blood on their hands. They're trampling the weak into the dirt. And God's anger is burning. Now chapter 1 ends with a description of God's judgment as unquenchable fire. The nation has fallen and it's failed. And then chapter 2, there's this sudden crunch of gears. A shift, a vision of a bright tomorrow where Jerusalem is not a prostitute but a lighthouse. Sending out the message of eternal hope and healing. Now, this vision for tomorrow as well is, is setting up for the rest of the chapter, which is a pretty full-on confrontation of sin. You see, see, what is happening is that the burning tenderness of God's gracious heart is reaching out. He is assuring his people of a bright tomorrow as he warns them about the awful judgment that must fall on their sin. And we have to hold both of those things maximally. A God is serious in his judgment. And God is serious in his mercy. We don't play those against each other. He is both at the same time. And to draw the trust of his people, he puts before them a vision of the future. Now what does it look like to be driven by this vision of the future? 
Well, Isaiah tells us in verse 5. What does he say in verse 5? Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The descendants of Jacob are to do just what the nations are doing. Same words repeated from verse 3. Come, let us walk, walk in the light. Isaiah just plants this little seed that quickly grows to a massive tree. Walk in the light. Well, what's the light? Well, when we get to chapter 9, we find of peop- there are people who are walking in darkness and they see a great light. The light dawns. And what is the light? Isaiah 9 verse 6 says, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. His name is mighty God. His name is Prince of Peace. And he will reign over an eternal kingdom of peace. See, the future of Isaiah 2 will be brought into existence through the child of Isaiah 9. The child born in Bethlehem, called the light of the world, who shines in the darkness. The Lord Jesus Christ, who came to be slain, where darkness threatened to swallow all hope. But then in the darkness of the tomb, light dawned. Inextinguishable light, a light of the new day. The last days beginning with the rising of Jesus out of the darkness of death. And then one day he'll come back. His face shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. And we'll hear his voice from the throne saying, I am making everything new. And we'll hear that loud voice that says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And see then, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. And in his beautiful presence, he will stoop to wipe every tear from our eyes. And death will be no more. The tools of death transformed into the tools of life. Because the future is gloriously bright. And so today, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The question isn't, what will the future be? The question is, will you be part of it? Is this future described here, is it your future? And the answer will be found in, will you come and walk in the light of the Lord? If we're going to walk in the light of the Lord, we have to stop scrambling up the shrinking mountains of false hopes. Confessing to the Lord our sin, our sin that deserves his eternal anger and throw ourselves upon his tender mercy. The mercy that is so tender, it came personally from heaven, born as a child so he could offer himself in our place and take that eternal anger into his own soul and then be crushed in the darkness so that all who trust him need never fear that darkness taking hold of them, but have the assurance, his assurance, that our future is in the light. And all who ask Jesus to save them and bring them into his great tomorrow, all who ask, he will save. Save to walk in the light of Christ. Which is how we go on in the Christian life. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord Jesus. Now, what our passage shows is that we live today because of what tomorrow will bring. C.S. Lewis again said this. He said, if you read history, you will find the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. But don't let that be us. So ineffective in this world because we can't think about tomorrow. Let's walk in the light of the Lord Jesus. 
Uh, two things for what that might mean for us. Let's be wise to the lies. Come, let's walk in the light. Now don't get taken in by the lie that this world is all that there is. That this world now is all that matters. That is a suffocating lie. Hear it everywhere, don't we? Whispering in our ear. You must have it now because there's no tomorrow. The adverts pour it into us, don't they? The one with the most toys wins. That thing that you're obsessing over, even now your mind keeps going to it. You're obsessing over it over and over again. It's a lie that you must have it. Or the lie that we, where we devote our best energies to building treasure on earth. I mean, could you do that audit of your life? Where are you investing your best energy for the temporary things of this life or the permanent glory of tomorrow? Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord Jesus. Let's be wise to the lies. Now, your most exciting dreams about stuff that will pass and perish. Come, let's walk in the light of the Lord Jesus. And the worries that we have, the, 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 the things when we fret about what this life has failed to give us. You know, maybe life hasn't given us the relationship that we wanted or, or the wealth that we think we need. Or, or, or maybe it's our health, that, that life hasn't delivered us the health that we wanted, or, or some sense of significance. And we haven't got it, and we get so caught up with it. No, let's walk in the light of Christ, the light of his great tomorrow. Let's be wise to the lies. Be wise to the lies, and let's reflect the light. And when we walk in the light of Christ, his light shines off us to those around. Our future is secure. And our future is good. And because our future is secure and good, we can hold loosely to what we have today. Now think about what you have. Might, might not be much, but you have something, some money, some time, some energy, some ability, some resources. Don't close your fists tightly around them. Open your hand, use them to meet the needs of others. In the light of Christ, we can love our enemies. In the light of Christ, we can do good to all those we meet. We can bless and not curse and pray for those who hate us. We don't have to protect ourselves. We don't have to avenge ourselves or hoard up for ourselves because Christ lives. Christ lives to meet our need today and tomorrow and for all the tomorrows. Let's reflect the light. The future is sure and it is glorious and all who want a part in it can have a part in it. All the nations, all the peoples can come. They can all come, but, but will they come? Now, How do they come if they don't hear an invitation to come? How will they come if people aren't saying, come? How will they know that there is a God of such immense justice and tender mercy? How will they know that there is a God who has prepared this place, this beautiful new world where they can live with him forever? How would they know that a sacrifice has been made for their sin and the blood of Christ has paid for their forgiveness? How will they know unless someone says, come, let's go up to the house of the Lord. Come, let's walk in the light of Christ. It's as the word goes out that the peoples rush in. It's what Isaiah foresaw. It's what began in earnest at Pentecost. It's what has happened to all of us who believe today that the word went out and it came to us. Someone said to us, come and see. The message of Christ hit our hearts. A God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And now we who walk in the light of Christ are to do all we can to say to others, come. 
Come, let's go to the house of the Lord. But what about those books we gave out last week about the resurrection? There's more at the back. Have you read it yet? Maybe some of it? Give it to someone? Or, or, or what about the person, the unbeliever who the Lord puts in your heart right now? You commit to pray for them? Seek the Lord for the opportunity to say, come and see. No, for today. Today we may still be shrouded in darkness. No, today we may ache and sow in tears. But tomorrow, tomorrow is incredibly bright. A weeping is only for the night. But the age of darkness is passing. And there will be joy in the morning. Joy when the sun rises on the new day. And Christ himself is that sun. And we will see him. And we will be with him forever. Come. Let us walk in the light of Christ. Let's have a moment of quiet just to reflect. To pray. To bring our hearts to the Lord who shines on us. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you'd help us to know that all that you say you will do and that the future is incredibly bright because of the Lord Jesus. Would you help each of us to know what it means this week to walk in the light of Christ? Amen.